Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Arn with the one of the greatest of all time, the Hall of Famer, the founder of the Four Horsemen, the enforcer, Double A, Arn Anderson himself. Arn, what's going on, man? How are you? Doing awesome. It's hard to follow that setup, though. My God. <laughs> well, man, I'm having fun. I think our listeners are having fun here at ArnShow.com. Uh, lots of people discovered the show last week. I saw incredible feedback online. What was the feedback you got? Same thing. Um, everybody was very gracious, uh, very kind in their comments. Uh, I had asked everybody to uh, kind of bear with me, and uh, I, I listened to the to the podcast back last week. A lot of uh, breathing in on my part. <laughs> Well, in fairness, you've never done it before, but now I, I think we got it down pat now. I think we're getting a little better and you're getting a little more comfortable. What they're tuning in for those, not the breathing, they're tuning in for the stories and man, we got a lot of great feedback from the stories. I had no idea, you know, some of the stories that you shared with us that you sat underneath Ted DiBiase's learning tree and why the friendship with Ric Flair was what it was so early and the way it took care of you when you had to go to the hospital and then there's the Matt Bourne story, and there's so much meat on the bone in last week's episode. If you missed the Territory Days, go back and check out episode one. Uh, it's a great story. and tells you sort of how we got here. When you listen back, did you uh, did you think we missed anything? Did we pretty well cover it? Anything else you want to tag on for last week? Uh, I mean, there's always going to be stuff that's going to come back, and I'm going to remember. And uh, but I think we, you know, we set it up pretty good, and. Uh, went in chronological order uh my my wife uh, almost killed me when you ask about the super olympia and it took me about eight hours to get back to you <laughs> on the answer to that <laughs> are you going to answer the man for god's sakes that's funny so uh no 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 hey uh it, it's uh it's great. It's just bringing back memories and and uh it's awesome stuff i'd forgotten and, and tremendous well, we're looking forward to, uh, every week here on Westwood one, tell a friend, hit the subscribe button. Arn is going to drop every Tuesday right here on Westwood one. You can find the show first at arnshow.com and it's going to start popping up everywhere, man. We, uh, we're excited that all the third party platforms have accepted us and we would love to have your five-star review. If you think we're so deserving, we've got some fun stuff planned for you in the coming weeks as well. We're going to get around to fall brawl 95, where he fought his best friend, Ric Flair for the first time on pay-per-view. You will probably also cover the famous promo that people are still talking about my spot. Uh, I assume at some point in, uh, the month of October, we'll hit a Halloween Halloween havoc 95, where they push the giant off the building. Seems like that's got a fun liner or two in there for Arn. So stay tuned. We've got lots of fun stuff coming your way, but today's episode is all about leaving Jim Crockett promotions in September of 88. After a very dominant and legendary run in the NWA as a tag team wrestler, a singles wrestler, and the founding member of the four horsemen, you decide to, uh, take your talents North and you take your old pal, totally Blanchard with you. And pretty shocking to see you guys make the jump before we get to 88 though, we should probably lay some groundwork back in 87. Vince McMahon is on the heels of the biggest show of all time. Of course, in March, it was WrestleMania three. And soon after what's left of the territories are just limping along and it's become clear at this point in late 87, it is a two horse race. It's McMahon and Crockett. And they're sort of left to pick the bones of the territories. And one of the last big holdouts is Bill Watts, but his business is down and he's looking for a way out. And our pal JR negotiates a deal for Crockett to buy him out. 
And then Crockett decides to relocate some offices to Texas. And he has a lot of other ideas like creating TWN, the wrestling network, and to combine the UWF and Crockett under one banner. I know you can't speak for everybody, Arn, but what did you and Tully think of Crockett buying out Watts? And what'd you think of these TWN plans and maybe moving to Texas for the Crockett's? Uh, prior to, to, to buying Watts out, even there was a, a purchase of the Kansas city territory, which, you know, it, it was a way above my pay grade as far as, as people buying each other out and, and uh, buying companies and expanding and all that stuff. But, but anybody could tell that, uh, Kansas City territory was dead. What what were you buying? Right. You know, even a late a lay person knew that. You know, you know what I mean. Uh, we sent we sent a crew out there of guys and based them uh, in Kansas City. Uh, it was the new what UWF, I believe was the name that it was called. Is that correct? Uh, Bill Watts territory was UWF. Yeah. Okay. What was what was Kansas City? That was prior to Bill Watts, wasn't it? Central States. I think that's what you mean. Bob Geigel's territory. That was the first chink in the armor that I saw. Why would you buy that? Well, I mean, what are you buying? They sent they sent a crew of guys out there to live in Kansas City. It was like Big Bubba and a bunch of those guys. Should we even get into that or yeah, if you'd like or to, just, sure. Well, I, I'm not real knowledgeable about it, but I just know that they bought a dead territory. They were just, you know, Jim Crockett paid for absolutely nothing. There was nothing to buy. Now, in that era, when somebody says they're buying someone's territory, and Bruce and I have mm-hmm. joked about this for a while, all they really were doing is buying their television slot. And Vince McMahon sort of created a bit of a life hack for that eventually, where he would just go directly to the television stations and offer them more money than whoever the local promoter could afford. Perhaps maybe Crockett's were trying to uh, do some more quote unquote fair dealing and, and give the promoters a payout payday on the way out. You know, that that's entirely possible. And, uh, I guess there was still some, you know, between all those promoters back in the day, uh, between the Crockett's and the Geigles and, you know, the, the different people, the Jim Barnett's, I guess there was still a loyalty to each other that they would do the right thing and come in and pay them for their televisions and, and things of that nature. But the fact was Jim Crockett had, uh, you know, he had TBS, he had the biggest tool you could have to go in anywhere you wanted to in the world, anywhere TBS was, that's where you could go. And, uh, you know, even back then, which was way above my head because I was just concentrating still on getting better, becoming more valuable, being an important part of the company, uh, becoming the best worker that I possibly could be the, the best employee that I could possibly be. This stuff was all over my head, but even then you just went, when you heard about how the towns were drawing out there, you just went, my God, what has he bought? So it, to me, if you're being loyal to a promoter and you give him whatever the amount of money was with him, knowing it's a dead issue, there should be some loyalty back to Jim Crockett, you know, uh, especially when, it's coming out of the guy's pay now. When you buy a dead horse and it affects your pay, then then it becomes something personal, and it, and you start to you know ask more questions about it. Uh, same thing with Bill Watts. I mean, when you bought the territory, what did you really buy? Right. 
everything everything was on its ass at that particular point. So is is it a one-sided loyalty? Well, when again, when it comes out of the Charlotte Cruise wallet, yes. And to be clear, what we're talking about is you've been uh, rolling pretty good at this point with Jim Crockett promotions, making X amount of dollars per week or per month as it were. And now when you see the same crowns or maybe better than before, but somehow you're making less, you got to wonder where it's going and it doesn't take a lot to realize, well, it's going to St. Louis. Well, it's going to Dallas. Absolutely. And, and that crew of guys need to eat too. You know, it's, it, it's, it's not a question of that, but in those days, the fact was <clears throat> you got paid off the house, right? Didn't matter. Didn't matter who your friend was. Didn't matter who your drinking buddy was. Didn't matter what your political views were. Push come to shove, whatever the house was, that's what you got paid off of. And, uh, you know, for the Charlotte crew who was going around and, uh, you know, no matter what town we went to out West, you know, even if we went to Kansas city, you brought in the Charlotte crew, it was kick ass. You had a, you had a big gate and, uh, to have that money coming out of your end to be spread around other places. Yeah. It became a sore subject. One of the things that has been criticized over the years is Crockett's decision to, you know, take over this office and this lease in Dallas. And, uh, apparently it was a very nice palatial building, but, uh, maybe not one that the company was ready to afford at the time. And as a result, that decision was questioned as was, I believe the second purchase of a plane. So, you know, Crockett had had a plane for a while, but, but now we've got a second plane. Uh, are, are all of these decisions leaving you and Tully sort of scratching your head? Well, to be honest with you, you know, I, it wasn't my job to question the rhetoric. You know, there were, it was above my pay grade. My job was to show up, bust my ass, put as many seats, fill as many seats as I possibly could put a butt every 17 inches was the old cliche. And, uh, it wasn't my job to decide why are you putting an office out in uh, in Dallas. What we were here and I say, guys, we're going to conquer the world. We're on fire. And if we would have stayed on the East Coast, Jim Crockett Promotions would still be in business and still be thriving today. I truly believe that because the East Coast was on fire. Uh, the fact is they wanted to make that choice. I never went to the Dallas office. There was never a reason for me to go to the Dallas office. Tully was more in tune just because of his background, his father owning a territory, being more on the business end. He was a lot more savvy, a lot smarter than I was about that end of the business. My job was just to go out there and bust my ass and have the best match I could possibly have. Well, and your job was paying pretty good and, and money is really the name of the game. And there's the old cliche in wrestling. It's all about the money and the miles. And what younger listeners to this show may have to understand is that the talk of wrestling fans was WrestleMania and the phenomenon of WrestleMania, but the talk amongst the boys was the payday associated with that show and the action figures that Vince had created for the industry cartoons and all these other different licensing pieces where there's new revenue streams where maybe that wasn't commonplace in wrestling before we even talked about last week the guys sort of took care of their own quote-unquote gimmicks well now vince mcmahon has taken that to a whole new level and there's hulk hogan lunch boxes and hulk hogan cartoons and uh hillbilly gym action figures 
And the boys are talking about how this cash is just pouring in and that creates a bit of a war for talent. Uh, Vince is trying to sign any and every piece of talent for his program and not only to make his show better, but also to hurt the competition. And this feels like it has, according to what we fans have been reading for years now, Crockett has to, uh, sort of reassess, Hey, how can I compete with this? And perhaps Jimmy and dusty come up with a new idea of how to compete. They acknowledge that, well, you won't have one big WrestleMania payoff for the boys, but if you stick with dusty, if you stick with Crockett, you'll get more money because we're going to run more pay-per-views. The idea being that Vince only has WrestleMania, but dusty wants to run four or five pay-per-view shows, which in theory would net you more than just one WrestleMania. When did you first start hearing this narrative and this pitch from dusty or Crockett or someone in the office? Well, uh, number one, the marketing checks guys were being very vocal that worked for the WWF at the time. They would let you know the Iron Sheik's getting $80,000 for a quarterly uh, figure check. Think about that. That's that's for the quarter, you know, and, and the, the marketing money that those guys were making, you know, was very, very – very loudly put out there. Um, and Vince McMahon was just so far ahead of the curve as far as, hey, if I can make these guys X number of dollars on their on their action figures and their T-shirts and all that stuff, they won't really give, you know, give a crap about uh, what they're actually making per town. And they were doing very well. When they were at their peak, they were running three towns a night, and all three towns were doing pretty damn well. So, you know, he's a marketing genius as far as, you know, getting every dollar you could possibly get out of the talent. And then, obviously, WrestleMania came along, another brilliant move, and it's like, Jesus. So then we start hearing about, okay, we're going to have a pay-per-view. And, uh, you know, just a little food for thought before we get past it. You know, what do you think the four horsemen would have brought in if you had a brought in a camp? a company and a marketing company and we had all the horseman stuff even though we were still bad guys we had just about became cult heroes at this point in time what do you think you know we could have brought in on marketing had we had the option yeah i mean i know crockett did his best to package that for you guys i think you had horseman vitamins and you had a horseman jacket and a horseman t-shirt but not nearly the machine that vince mcmahon had at the time you got to think you could have added another comma or two let me put it to you this way uh, you know horseman vitamins might have gave me diarrhea that's about the only thing that happened from taking horseman vitamins they uh you know we had just one little spurt there where there were some you know uh t-shirts and sweatshirts and they took a few pictures with us with those on but i never got a check which is the only thing that mattered to me we never got one dime marketing which brings you up to now Jimmy Crockett and the tipping point for us or for me anyway, was I had a friend, Barry Darso, who was half a demolition, who was very, very happy with WWF. And he was the guy that contacted me a couple of times during the course of, of his run up, up there before we came and said, Hey, Vince would like to have you. You know, well, 
thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. I, but I was very happy. I was happy in my role. I was happy in the money I was making. I was happy in the travel. So we were hearing horror stories about the travel with those guys. But it was a couple of times, you know, over 86 and 87, you know, I got a little word from Barry. And uh, I just kind of put it, you know, in the back of my mind. Then WrestleMania came along. And uh, Jim Crockett, this was the tipping point for Tully and myself. He took us in a room, completely unsolicited, and said, okay, guys, you know, we've got this pay-per-view coming from New York, and I just want you to know, I know, you know, we're still up in the air with the contract negotiations with Turner and all this stuff, but I want to pay you guys twenty-five grand for this pay-per-view coming up. Okay, when you volunteer something like that, be a man of your word. We did the pay-per-view. I didn't ask what the numbers was. It was none of my business. I just knew what the owner of the company told me he was going to pay me. Got time to get our payoff, and we got exactly half. Biggest disappointment of my life. Now, would you quit on whatever that was, whatever half of that, you know, $25,000 is? Well, no, but it hurt my feelings. And it's the first time in the business being a grown man in a business that has nothing but grown men in these days, grown women. But uh, it hurt my feelings. When a guy tells me that's what he's going to pay me, pay me. That's it. Because otherwise, on the, the first, what I viewed, the first negotiation, it wasn't even a negotiation. It was just a fact. Here's what I'm paying you. When a guy's word is no good. I start to look at him completely different than I did 30 minutes before that. And uh, that's what happened. And that's what really got me thinking, hey, should I ride this out? Should I wait to see? I found out what, what had, uh, you know, through the grapevine that the negotiations were not going all the way positive with uh, Turner buying the company. And we also heard another rumor that if he didn't buy it, that the company was going to go bankrupt, which tells me people are going to be scrambling for lifeboats. There's only so many to go around, and I wanted to get ahead of that curve for sure. All right, Aaron, let's run a timeout right now because I got a question for our audience. If you could pay your house off faster and with cheaper monthly payments, why wouldn't you? And I know what you're thinking. Oh, I've looked into this before. I'm not sure if it really made sense. I don't know how much I really save. Is it really even going to be worth it? Let us run the numbers for you right now at savewithconrad.com. And I'm telling you, you're going to be surprised. Interest rates are cheaper than when you bought your house. But in addition to that, you've also probably got some credit card debt hanging around that we can help you knock out. And you really want to talk about saving some money? Let's cut some years off of your home loan. I'm talking to you if you're in a 30-year loan. We routinely help our podcast listeners take their 30-year loan and pay it off in just about half the time. And a 15-year loan is much more affordable if you had no credit card debt, if there was no more car payment. You see, the average interest rate on a credit card right now in the United States is more than 19%. Meanwhile, we can get you a rate in the threes or fours. And oh, by the way, the interest you pay on a credit card is not tax deductible, whereas the interest on your mortgage would be. So if you could get an interest rate, that's a fraction of a fraction of what you're paying now. And in addition to that, go ahead and get a greater tax deduction. And oh, by the way, pay your house off in half the time. You're going to do this with cheaper monthly payments than what you're paying right now. 
get out of debt as fast and as cheap as you possibly can. And let's save with Conrad.com show you how easy it is. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. And if we can't save you some cash, we won't waste your time. And how's this for starters? No house payments for two months. What are you waiting for? Save with Conrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Well, and in theory, you have more leverage while the company is still around and kicking than if the company were to go belly up, then Vince maybe doesn't feel like he has to pay you as much or give you as good of a spot. Whereas that's not the case while the company's still thriving or from his perspective, thriving. Well, it was damn sure thriving because just about that time came the angle with the Midnight Express and the Four Horsemen, and we know what a huge success that was. Let's let's back up a little bit and talk about specifically when you're disappointed with your your pay per view payoff. That's Starcade '87, mm-hmm. or that's Bunkhouse Stampede. Uh, that was the uh, New York pay-per-view, which I believe was the Bunkhouse Stampede. That's right. January 24th, 1988, Long Island. To add some context to the decision you were about to make, when, when JCP decide they want to throw their hat in the pay-per-view ring for Starcade 87, Vince responds by creating the Survivor Series pay-per-view to go head-to-head. To be clear, Survivor Series didn't exist beforehand. It was created to compete with Starcade 87. Crockett realizes this is a no win proposition to go head to head with Vince. So he moves his start time to an afternoon start. So originally Starcade 87 was a night show, but because now survivor series wanted to go head to head, they moved it to an afternoon show and that's not good enough for Vince. He gives the cable companies a bit of an ultimatum and he tells them they can't carry both shows. They've got to pick between the WWF, which was now a proven success on the heels of WrestleMania three or this new unproven regional event called Starcade. When Crockett decides to run a second big pay-per-view the following January, this time it's in Vince's yard, which feels strategic. It feels like it is a response from what happened before. We're running a show on pay-per-view in New York now, and we're going to call it the bunkhouse stampede. So Vince tries to put together another pay-per-view power play with the cable companies, but they won't have it this time. So his solution is to hurt his competitors who are dabbling in his pay-per-view background or playground rather let's create the Royal rumble and let's give it away on free TV. So the Royal rumble was created simply to hurt the bunkhouse stampede. And it was given away for free on the USA network. And it happens of course on January 24th, 1988, the same day as the bunkhouse stampede in long Island and our new were part of a, a 20 man over the top rope battle Royal. You're going to last 22 minutes and 37 seconds there. Uh, and you're going to, um, address this in a, in a shoot interview years ago, your only shoot interview that I know of, you said we had done a pay-per-view from long Island earlier, and he made us a promise on a payoff that didn't come through. Uh, now of course, with Vince giving away the rumble that had to hurt the pay-per-view and the bunkhouse show only sold 6,000 tickets. So that's not exactly gangbuster business. Uh, and it's a disappointing payoff because it's exactly half. But it feels like it might be exactly half because Vince is just, you know, he's, uh, he's playing chess and maybe the Crockett's are playing checkers. What do you think of that? Well, it's a cutthroat business. And again, I I don't begin to understand it. And when, you know, 
we just kept getting told, hey, don't worry about what the, the house was. Worry about what the pay-for-view buy rate was, which is a it's a figure that's out in the universe floating around that uh, whatever the boss tells you it is, that's what it is. You don't know how you're going to document that. Right. So, so, you know, I was a guy that when my boss told me something, I didn't have a reason to not believe him until there was a reason to not believe him. And, uh, I was hanging on, I was, we were at war and I was one of the soldiers that was handpicked to be on the front lines with Jim Crockett promotions. And I took that very seriously and we wanted to win the war. We wanted to. I guess not only succeed, but prevail. And uh, I was still in the fight. I was still on the side of, of, of Jim Crockett promotions, but I was still getting these occasional messages. Hey, man, why don't you come up here? We're doing, we're making money. Everybody's happy. You know, a lot of money being made up here. Um, you might want to consider it. So there was a lot going on in my head, at, you know, going through my head at the time. Who's sending those messages at the time? Bear Darso. Okay. One half a de- one half a demolition, and he was very well respected uh, by Vince and and uh, his company. And I think I guess he put out some feelers just on his own because Barry and I were best friends at that particular time. It was as as much a personal thing as it was a business thing. Let's talk about, uh, bunkhouse stampede and that payoff you got, you said that it was, you know, roughly half of what you were expecting. Um, in my research, I read that you got a disappointing payoff in may, and I've heard that sometimes the pay-per-view paydays were always slow because you've got to process them through the cable companies and the money just comes 90 days later, or sometimes a little more. Is that, is that the timeline you have the show at the end of January and it's probably may before you actually get the payoff and you realize, well, shit, this is half. Yeah. Because, you know, again, I was hanging on to that. That was the first time that Jim Crockett had, you know, Jimmy Crockett was a different man. He, he, not a lot of people really knew him personally. I think Rick had a special relationship. Obviously, Dusty did. They had very, you know, special relationships with him. But other than those two guys, I'm not sure. Maybe JJ. But, you know, the regular soldiers did not have a personal relationship with Jimmy Crockett, to my knowledge. And uh, when the man told me, you know, 90 days, you're going to have 25 grand sitting there. You know, that's a lot of money at my house. And it's always been a lot of money at my house. So we were sitting there riding it out for the 90 days. Like I said, we were at war. We were doing all the things from our end, you know, to win the war. And then it gets time. I look at that check expecting to see 25 grand for a night's work. That's, that's huge. And I say 11, seven. So then I talk to, uh, I go to Jimmy and I talk to him and he says, well, you know, we're, we're fighting for our lives on, you know, we're trying to do the best we can for the talent and for the company and trying to keep our head above water. It was first one of those conversations I'd ever had with Jimmy about money. I'd never talked to Jimmy Crockett about money because I was very happy with what I was making. It's the most money I'd ever made in my career and in my life. I never dreamed I could make that much money. 
So um, we had that conversation, and he, again, he gave me his word. I'm going to make it up to you. You will get your money. Trust me. Well, famous last words. Still waiting on the check. When did you first hear that guys like Lex Luger and the Road Warriors and the Midnight Express were all not only getting bigger checks but guaranteed contracts? Because I know that you know all of those guys have been very public about the fact that they had guaranteed contracts, and it doesn't sound like even Tully at this point had one. Well, no, I think if the if the timeline is correct, Lex Luger came into the company with a contract, right? Which was, you know, way prior to all of this going down in a roundabout way, inadvertently, every one of us that has enjoyed a contract in the wrestling industry, guaranteed money, I guess, owe it to Lex Luger and the road warriors. Because when Luger came in, he was put on a very nice contract, not my place to say what it was, but we heard some rumors and it was about, uh, two and a half times what Tully and I were making. Obviously the road warriors who were a, the hottest ticket in town found out about that. They negotiated a deal with Jim Crockett, which was more than what Luger had substantially. Had a very nice package, I think, times three years. So now those guys are getting huge guaranteed money, and we're still getting paid off the house. And I would dare say, without any hesitation, that without the four horsemen, it wouldn't have mattered what Luger and the Road Warriors were doing. There wouldn't have been nearly as much, I won't say a lot of success, but nearly as much success as what they had with the full horseman package being plugged into the house shows every night and television. I, I feel like we should mention that, um, Tully Blanchard has said exactly what you've said many times that, you know, for whatever reason, uh, you know, the, the road warriors could go run a show and, and there would be, uh, some folks there, but it might not be a sellout. But when the road warriors were wrestling, Arn and Tully, it was darn sure a sellout. And he took issue, I think, that especially with a guy like Lex Luger, who's really still learning his craft, you guys are the ones out there doing the heavy lifting, making him look good. He comes in with a guaranteed contract for a multiple of what you've got. And in reality, you're the secret sauce in the ring. And it feels like everybody at that point knows it except Crockett. Is that fair to say? Looking back on it in retrospective, it's the way it looks to me now. Otherwise, why wouldn't he have fixed it when he had the chance? Did you ever voice your frustrations about this, about you know putting over the Road Warriors or Lex Luger or guys who most would agree weren't quite the in-ring talent that you and Tully were? at a fraction of the money. Did you, did you express any of that to dusty? Uh, I know you said you didn't Jimmy, but what about David Crockett or dusty Rhodes or Ric Flair? Well, I have, I have never worried about what anybody else makes. I never asked what anybody else makes. It's none of my business. I found out about it through the grapevine. And to be honest with you, the road warriors were over. I wanted to be wrestling the road warriors because I knew 
We were going to fill up the house to capacity. I had confidence in them and in confidence in us. Luger came in. I don't blame Lex for getting a guaranteed contract. Whether that was presented to him as an incentive to come or whether he asked for it, I don't know what the real story is about that, but I don't hold it against him. Everybody's going to make or should try to make every dime that they can in this business because careers are cut short, injuries happen. A lot of things can happen. Companies go out of business. You never know how long your run's going to be, and there's not much call in the workplace for a beat-up ex-wrestler, if if you want to be frank about it. Um, I didn't look at those guys as doing something uh, shady. They just – it's a business, and they negotiated themselves a hell of a deal. Like I said, I never asked what anybody made. I didn't care. I was making more money than I ever dreamed possible. That little eight-year-old kid who was just wanting to be a wrestler was being a wrestler now. And I wasn't actually worrying about what I was making because I looked at the houses, I looked at what my pay was, and it was substantial for those days. So Tully looked at things differently because – Tully's dad had owned a, a territory, and, and he was more on the business end, like we've spoke about before. Me, I was just a soldier out there butting heads, having a blast, and, and, and that's exactly what was happening. And Luger was a great asset. Luger was paid on potential and his look, and I think he would have to agree with that. Lex never became a great worker. He plateaued off at a certain level. And uh, having the horseman around him as a supporting cast, we were able to disguise him, and he just looked like a big monster out there mowing guys down. And, and that's how we disguised him, and that's how we used him. Here's the quote I was looking for earlier from Tully. It was not the fact of getting paid. It was signing contracts. When Turner was hiring and buying the company, he was signing people to big contracts, and other people had those contracts, but they didn't sign Arn and I to a contract. So it was job security as well as money. When you're the people who are selling tickets, when it's a sellout, when the road warriors are beating you up and it's not a sellout when they're beating up somebody else. And and this brings up an interesting point because a few years ago, Ryback made some waves online when he was arguing that the, for lack of a better word, enhancement talent, the underneath guy, uh, should be paid closer to what the top guys are getting paid because one doesn't exist without the other. And lots of folks were very critical of Ryback pointing out this income disparity, but I'm curious on your take because you've been on both sides. You've been the guy there to look good and to make other guys look good. And you're from the old school. Where do you land on this? Should there be as big of a, of an income disparity? Well, I guess I would first ask who, who took exception with the comments. Well, I think there were a lot of fans online saying that, oh, the idea that, you know, and, uh, we'll call it a Bo Dallas should make closer to what John Cena does is ridiculous. But in that era, Bo Dallas was the bad guy. Of course, he's not the merch seller. I mean, even last week we talked about how, if you were a good guy in a territory, you made a lot of your living, sometimes up to half or even more based on your ability to quote unquote, sell gimmicks and at the gimmick table. Well, if that's the case and the bad guys don't sell the merch, but how much they love the good guy is based on how much they hate the bad guy. And he doesn't have an opportunity to participate in that merchandise. It does seem like that's not exactly the most equitable position to be in 
If, if you're just in the business to make money, then everybody would want to be a good guy, which sort of defeats the purpose of wrestling in general. You've got to have good guys and bad guys. So should there be uh, more of a level playing field with the income in your opinion? Well, it's never been that way and it never would be that way. It's, um, I don't know how you can take talent, whether they're a good guy or a bad guy and, and start comparing them on a pay scale. It's more about who gets over. Right. And that's really the only thing that matters because if you get over, you can't be denied. Um, I guess backing up a little bit and, and Ryback made his, I'm sure his comments came from, from the right place. It came from his heart. Uh, I'm sure. And if you look at things today and there's a whole nother issue that has played into this, but guys in the WWE opening match are making huge money, huge money. And that's about a whole different set of circumstances we won't get into here. But, uh, you know, wh wherever his comments came from, that you know, that came from his heart. Guy's a pretty straight shooter. My dealings with him, he's always said pretty much what he what he felt, and uh, I got to respect him for that. Uh, doubling back to the Tully and my situation, I guess the one thing that that once it all shook out, and and we got through sorting through, okay. How have we been treated? How do we expect to be treated? What are our aspirations going forward? And more so than anything, right at that moment in time when everything is up in the air or the or Jim Crockett promotion is going to go bankrupt, we're going to sell to Turner, they were questioning uh, and calling in and wanting comments from the top talent. Uh, they were, they were telling guys already, I would assume what their plans were for them contractually. No one seemed to have any urgency where Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson were concerned as far as let's get these guys signed to a contract. Let's get them buttoned up. We know their value. Uh, let's, let's make it right for them. And I guess that's probably one of the biggest things that, there was no priority where we were concerned. It was like, okay, I'm going to get these other guys that we perceive as stars. We're going to get them taken care of and whatever's left over. Now we'll, we'll deal with Tully and Arn thinking that we're never going to go anywhere or never do anything because we had been so loyal. I never said no in my life to anything that my boss told me to do in this business. I didn't know you could say no. So I never said no. I said, yes, sir. Whatever you need until we got to the very end. And then I said no a couple of times when it mattered. All right, Aaron, we, uh, we got the internet talking last week, not just about our debut episode, but about our sponsor on the show. Of course, we're talking about bluechew.com. And, uh, I think the world can't believe that, that you're on the blue chew train, man. H how does it feel to be on board the blue chew train? Well, why can't they believe it? I'm 61. Do you know what that means? <laughs> It means you're, uh, in wrestler years, I'm about 130. Me chasing the misses around the, around the house right now is, is probably as good an endorsement for blue chew as you can possibly have. Yeah. Check it out, man. Find out what everybody else in wrestling already knows. Bluechew.com is legit. They're going to line you up with a, an online physician. So you skip the awkward in-person doctor visit. 
And because you don't have the in-person doctor visit, it's also cheaper. What's it cheaper than? It's cheaper than Viagra and Cialis. You see, Blue Chew has the same active ingredient, but it's chewable, which means it can work faster, often up to twice as fast. You can even take it on a full or an empty stomach. And it's made right here in the USA, so you know it's good stuff. But the best part is how easy it is. It's not only cheaper, but easier. No in-person doctor, no awkward visit to the pharmacy, no waiting in line. It shows up at your front door, very discreet packaging, and it only costs $5. Why wouldn't you do this? They're going to go ahead and get you your first shipment for free. All you're paying for is the shipping. It's free. Why wouldn't you do it? It's bluechew.com. Use our promo code ARN. That's A-R-N. And find out what Arn Anderson found out. Uh, how to give the hot tag to your gimmick. Check it out. Bluechew.com. And use that promo code ARN. It'll put a new slant on Spine Buster. Let's talk a little bit about um, the bunkhouse stampede for a minute. Uh, Flair's sort of love hate relationship with Dusty is well documented. He'd get frustrated with Dusty's booking where the horsemen were left laying every week and Dusty was always getting the win. And at the end of Bunkhouse Stampede, Uh, It's more of that with Dusty coming out on top. And Tony Schiavone tells the story of getting into a limo with you guys after the show and you and Tully are not happy. And specifically, uh, he remembers Tully uh, saying something along the lines of, I think Dusty Rhodes should just book himself against himself so he can always go over in the main event. Were you frustrated with not just the cash, but the creative at this time as well? I was never frustrated with Dusty because I knew if I wrestled Dusty, I was going to be making a top payoff. You know, it wasn't, for me, it was never what in my mind I thought it should be. If I was wrestling Dusty, I knew I was going to get a top payoff for that night. So I I didn't have those issues. And again, you know, Tully and Rick, they were in a... uh, they were in a creative conflict in their head about what they felt like things should be and all that. And Rick and, and Dusty were always trying to one up each other. In my mind, now you got to understand Conrad, I was still in a position and somewhat today when I see Dusty Rhodes or I see Ric Flair or I see Hulk Hogan, I see someone who's bigger than life and who transcended the business during their era. I was starstruck the first time I ever saw Dusty Rhodes and the last time I saw him. He was just a a big star in my mind. Same thing with Ric Flair. Same thing with uh, Hulk Hogan. These guys have just transcended the business. And I never looked at things like, well, Dusty's not treating me right or Dusty's not taking care of me the right way as the booker should and all those things. I never looked at that. Now, did I get frustrated when I was having to work with guys that uh, were making three times what I was? Sometimes. But it wasn't I was mad at them. I got mad at the system. Sure. Well, that makes sense. Uh, I do want to ask about uh, the creativity as we head into 88, because not only are our finances tight, but David Crockett had said that by early 88, Dusty's creativity had gone stale and most of his storylines seemed to come from John Wayne movies. And there's no denying that Dusty was a genius and his contributions to Jim Crockett were invaluable from late 83 on. But is it fair to say that by 88, some of the boys had lost confidence in his ability to create much as David Crockett had? 
Well, I, I was only privy to talk to just a few guys. You know, I know there was some some dissension within our group, but we also, even till the very end, till the last day and we were out the door, don't take this the wrong way, but it's just a fact. We were over. Right. And when you're going out every night, and it doesn't matter that there's only – 8,500 people in, in the arena, and last time there was 9,500. You got 8,500 people standing for 25 minutes, 30 minutes, and cheering everything you do. You're a success, and what you're doing is still working. Forget about the outcome of the match. I don't know that I ever won a match. I can't remember winning one, but anyway, when it was all said and done, when you got 8,500 people standing up, giving you the four horsemen sign up and the four horsemen sign down, but every one of them are screaming, you had a successful night. And even to the very end, when Jim Crockett Promotions was their finances and all that stuff, that had nothing to do with the people in the arena. Right. Our, our audience loved the product. Our fans loved what we brought to the table versus what WWF brought to the table. And that was the war we were in. That was the battle we were fighting. That was my mindset. And, uh, you know, and I never had a paycheck that tanked. I never had one that bounced. Uh, I never had one that I looked at and went, Jesus Christ, that sucks. Could it have been better? I had a, you know, well, wait a minute now. Wasn't there what? so many people wasn't there 10,000 people there that could have been a little better it was still more than I dreamed I would ever make and that's that's where my mindset has always been in the business let's talk a little bit about uh this version of the four horsemen in 87 um as far as on screen goes after Lex Luger was kicked out of the horseman it winds up being Barry Windham who turns on Lex and then takes the fourth spot before we talk about Barry what do you think of Lex as a horseman? Um, I think Lex probably was learning the business. He didn't realize what was being done for him, or maybe he did, but I'm not sure that he did. Lex's mindset was, you know, he was the best self-promoter of any, and I think anybody that knows him will agree. He was the best self-promoter in the history of the business. He could walk in, you know, all oiled up with that body and convince you that you just made the best purchase that you could have possibly made on this or any other universe by having him standing there in front of you. And uh, that wasn't the horseman mentality. The reason, and a lot of people don't get this, but if it's, it's absolutely true. The reason the horsemen were so successful for so long and even today, people are still talking about it. And I think we get more credit now than we ever have for whatever reason. People are going back looking at, you know, the network or they're looking at YouTube or whatever it is. And they're seeing just how hard we worked every single night to give our paying customer the best possible show that we could give them. No matter what else they saw that night, what the other matches were, we would go out and try to outdo each other. We weren't trying to outshine the good guys. We were trying to outshine each other and getting our ass kicked more creatively, more profoundly, 
and more consistently than anybody else in the business. And when it's all said and done, have an audience of people standing on their feet, cheering or booing us, totally wiped out from the experience. That's what the horseman mentality was. And I don't think Lex Luger ever understood that. Most people never understood it. That's the way it was. When you guys wind up leaving the promotion, the horsemen mm-hmm. consist of Flair, Arn, Tully, Barry, and JJ. What do you think of that version of the horseman? I got to say, it's it's probably my favorite. Well, it's from a performance standpoint, and the audience goes, and our opponents. That was definitely the best group. You know, people ask me all the time. I loved having Ole. As grumpy as he is, I loved having Ole because I personally thought he brought credibility to our group. I learned a lot from him. I was in awe of him. I was intimidated by him. And I know if he was my partner and I was intimidated by him, the guys across the ring had to be as well. But I think from a performance standpoint and being more flexible about what we could offer the company and offer our opponents, Barry was the best choice and did a great job as a horseman. Of course, Barry's working singles matches while you and Tully continue to dominate the tag division through 88. Uh, I don't know that this gets talked about enough. How good was Barry Windham from say 86 to 88? I think you could argue he was one of the best wrestlers in the world. Oh my God. Of course he was. Barry Windham never went to the gym a day in his life. He's six foot six, 260 pounds and Barry moved like a gazelle. Not only was his head in the right place every night, his performance was right on point, no matter who he was with. Barry is a guy that really doesn't get the kind of credit that he should because he could go out there, he could superplex animal off the top rope, or he could run a drop-down leapfrog spot as smooth as Brad Armstrong. He was just that good. And Barry knew the business, and he knew what to bring to a match. He knew how to build a match. He knew how to build an opponent. And then when it's all said and done, he knew how to get himself over as well. Barry Wyndham was an all-around cowboy. That's all I can tell you. Around the beginning of August, you sort of hinted at this earlier. You and Tully started an angle with the Midnight Express and their manager, Jim Cornette. And this is pretty unique at the time because in this era, we didn't often see good guy versus good guy or bad guy versus bad guy in any promotion, really. And at this time, of course, both your teams are, are heels. And the Midnight Express are also the U.S. tag team champs, and you guys are the world tag champs. This is unusual. What led to, uh, two heel tag teams, both with gold being in a bit of a feud with each other. Well, I'm not sure whose idea it was, but you know, at this point in time, I'm sure the, the brain trust was scrambling for what's new. What has not been done? What can we put out there that would be new and fresh? And, and I think Bobby and my relationship was a big selling point of that feud because we literally did live one street apart. We were best friends. Um, and, uh, I think Jim Cornette had such a talent for building feuds and, and building issues and just being an overall smart ass. He just really was good 
and you take J.J. Dillon, who was on the flip side of that coin, and he was indignant, and he was elitist, and he was had the horsemen to to have bragging rights over, and and all those things that that just it just came together as the perfect storm. And in those days, you're right, you didn't have two heel teams battling it out because you know if if they truly you know, looked at it, they would just go, well, I hate all four of those guys. Let them kill each other. Who gives a shit? Notoriously, you have to have a good guy and a bad guy. Good versus evil has been the crux of our business. I think it should be more so today. You know, we've gotten into that gray area. Well, gray area is okay. Uh, you know, I either like black or I like white. Gray to me is just what it is. Gray, dull. I don't understand, you know, there's nothing special about being gray. But I think in this scenario with Bobby and, and my relationship and Cornette being able to banter back and forth with JJ and Tully and I being able to to do what we do on the microphone, it just built into something that, hey, this is going to, you know, they're all champions. One of the U.S. tag champions, one of the world tag team champions. This has got some legs and uh, boy, did it. Jim Cornette said that, uh, he and Tully would go back and forth about who was going to be the heels. And Jim said that dusty decided to paint the midnights and Jim in the baby face role with how he orchestrated the angle. And Jim said that dusty felt he needed to keep you and Tully as the top heels for his promotion. And he said during the six to eight weeks where you guys were doing this angle, you all made tremendous money during it. He said the matches drew and the gates were incredible. And he said his one regret in his NWA run is that he didn't have six months with you guys as opposed to six weeks. And he said in that short time, it was already drawing more money than their feud with the Rock and Roll Express, which was the new record at the time. Everybody talked about how legendary those matches were, but how incredible the gates were with the Midnights on one side and Rock and Roll on the other. But Jim believes had you guys had more time here, that Arn and Tully versus the Midnights would have been even bigger. What say you? I agree with Jim Cornette a hundred percent. Um, which again, you know, as we're talking Conrad, I'm just, I'm reliving stuff that I skipped and, and my business head should have covered and should have thought about and sh- maybe should have stood up a little more about, you know, how I felt. But at the time, again, in Charlotte, for example, they had just opened the new Hornets Arena. And we actually, it was Ric Flair against Lex Luger. And then it was the Midnight and against uh, Tully and Arn. And I want to say in that inaugural event, in that building, we did 15,000 people with a double main event. That angle was on fire and it was just another example of i wish i would have stepped outside of myself and went okay um let me look at arn anderson and tully blanchard and the midnight express from a different perspective let me be on the outside looking in instead of being involved in it because it would have been another example of no matter who you put us with It wouldn't have mattered. It could have been a couple of guys that were up there selling popcorn. It would have had interest. 
with everybody in that audience. They would have went, well, hell, let's see what they're going to do with the popcorn guys. Wouldn't have mattered because we knew how to get a match over, to get our opponents over and get ourselves over. And it was, it was the biggest money that I had made with the exception of a couple of other times, but by and large week in and week out. And, and actually after we left, Tommy Rogers and Bobby Fulton were brought in to take our position when Tully and I left. Now, of course, Jim Crockett did not advertise that it wasn't going to be Tully and myself. They just left the advertising that was already out there six weeks out or whatever it was, left it the way it was. And those guys personally came up to me the next time I saw them and said, I just want to thank you. We had six weeks of the most money we've ever made in the, in the business. We'd like to thank you all for that. So, you know, we were a proven commodity. It didn't matter. And, uh, you know, it was just, but it was one of those things that at that point in time, that did help sway us as far as if we're in the middle of another hot angle that is carrying the company, and it was at that particular time, and they had seen just about every combination, they being our audience, that we had to offer. This was something new and fresh and kicking ass. If the guy that I've put my family and myself's trust in, the owner of the company, doesn't see what my value is here, and he's going to go ahead and mistreat us in other situations television-wise and opponent-wise, then what the hell am I doing? It really was a tipping point for me. Let's talk about late August, early September. When did you guys know for sure Hey, uh, Crockett's bleeding money and we're negotiating with Ted Turner to buy it out. I mean, you knew about the financial stuff in May when you had the conversation about fighting for our life and you know, you're explained that your, your payoff is half of what you were expecting, but when did you know, well, maybe Ted Turner is going to ride in here and save this thing. Do you remember the first time you heard that? <sighs> there was. There was speculation going around. It was going to be one of two things. Ted Turner was going to buy the company and we were going to thrive or he wasn't going to buy it. And Jim Crockett was going to go bankrupt. That was the two options. Um, let me just say this, the real tipping point of the whole thing, the thing that pushed us over the edge was on the same night in Houston, Texas, before we left. Do you want to cover this now? Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about it. Two days before that show, September 7th, there's a clash of the champions and it's in Albany in Georgia, Albany, Georgia, your backyard. And you and Tully are not on the show. Do you remember why? You know, I don't have a, a recollection of that. It just seems, I really don't. It seems weird to me because the card is Mike Rotunda and Brad Armstrong and a time limit draw. And then Nikita and Dr. Death against the sheep herders. And then Dusty Rhodes and Kevin Sullivan, and then Rick, Ricky Morton and Ivan Koloff. And then in the main event, it's uh, Sting and Barry Windham. But there's no flair on this show. There's no Arn. There's no Tully. It just seems sort of weird to me that you're not on the show. But around this same time, uh, there is an incident with uh, Tully uh, talking to some Turner folks. Tully has said Crockett was negotiating with Turner to sell his company. 
And Turner was interviewing all the key players, which I was one of, and we were instructed to be honest with everything. And I said, okay, I will. So they asked me some questions and I was honest with the answers and Crockett didn't like my answers because the people at Turner asked him some questions that I guess were uncomfortable to be answered. And I wasn't smart enough to just sashay around the questions. I answered them. I'm just a plain old simple guy. So they politely kicked me off the plane, told me I wasn't loyal. And I said, okay, I don't need to work here. And Arn and I dropped the titles the next night in Philadelphia. Now I know you're referencing a match on September 9th. Uh, in Houston, Texas, but I do want to ask, is that the same day that this conversation with Tully happens? Not sure. I, I do know, I do know this. They did send out the feelers. I was smart enough to not say all the little things that I thought were wrong. I wanted to put a brave face on the company because I wanted Turner to know that he was, and I truly believe that he was buying a quality product. I didn't want to be a naysayer and say all these things are wrong because I knew those people wouldn't have understood it anyway. They weren't wrestling people. They wouldn't have understand what I was talking about. So, you know, I just, without lying in any fashion or even stretching the truth, I just put a positive spin on, on what my comments were. And I never heard another word about it. Tully, I, you know, was always a guy that had a lot of heat with, 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 guys and sometimes management and all that because he said what he thought and he never even looked back he just said hey whatever whatever he thought that's what that's what he would say and uh, i guess that was one of those situations well let me ask did, did you find or when or how did you find out that they asked Tully not to ride on the plane anymore he told me he called me he said i'm not on the plane i got kicked off the plane which I was in shock. I mean, geez, holy smokes. Um, that was making a statement, making a huge statement. Um, and it was one of those things that didn't get discussed. Once we got on the plane, you just saw that he wasn't there and that was it. Let, let me ask, um, if you had to guess, is it Jimmy or David who tells him you're off the plane? David. Wow. And, and you know why? Because Jimmy didn't, like I said, he didn't have that personal relationship with guys, good or bad. He didn't deal with any of that stuff. So let's talk about September 9th, 1988. We're in Houston, Texas, your United States tag team champions, Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane, the midnight express are taking on the NWA world tag champs, Aaron Anderson and Tully Blanchard to go to a double DQ and in your old shoot interview from two decades ago, you were asked about negotiating with Vince and you said, quote, I put out a feeler and he said, absolutely. And something happened in Houston that wasn't to our liking as far as being treatment on television that had nothing to do with winning or losing or who we were wrestling. But there was an incident that I'd rather not go into. I addressed it with Jim Crockett and he didn't handle it properly. So I went and picked up the phone and called Vince McMahon. So. What happened in Houston that made you call Vince McMahon? Okay. Um, on that very same show, we went out and had a hell of a match and a hell of a fight with the Midnight Express. Left the audience just exhausted. And for some reason, they felt, they being the powers that be, that I should go out after that 
and lose to Steve Williams, Dr. Death, in four minutes. Now, I couldn't have beat Steve Williams with a baseball bat and a blowtorch and a dump truck backing over him. Not the point. The point is, Arn Anderson had value with the company. I just went out and proved it a little bit earlier, once again, and that's all they can think to use me for thinking that big that Steve Williams, who was Bill Watts' product, was big in that area of the company, in that area of the country, for that matter. Beside the point, it was just almost like it was just done to me in addition to what had been done to Tully, him getting taken off of the plane. I started to get a little paranoid. And then I got a little bit pissed, and then I started to think it through. Okay, sort through your, sort through your anger, sort. And it had nothing to do with Steve Williams. Like I said, this was a decision made by, you know, who knows. But then I thought, okay, let me just go ask Jimmy. And I asked Jimmy. I said, "Well, I did what you asked, but but why?" You think that was the right thing to do? I just did what the booker, I just backed up what the booker said he wanted to do, Arn. And that told me all I needed to know. I knew already knew I had a job offer in good standing from the other company. When it was over, I went back and told Tully. I said, I'm getting on the phone as soon as we get to one, and I'll, and I'll, I'll get this all resolved. We're out of here. Tell he's on board more than on board. So you, you put out this feeler, you know, I assume you're, you're still talking about Barry Dorso at that point. And then Darso puts a bug in Vince's ear and Vince calls you back and you guys have a conversation or did you jump on a plane and fly to Stanford? No, we were told when I got back and called the next day, we were going to be in uh, Philly and we're wrestling the midnight express again in Philadelphia for God's sakes. You know how excited we all four were, but all six of us were about that, obviously, right? Sure. You you can just anticipate those people in Philadelphia who are blood and guts. They got four guys that are going to go out and give it to them, blood and guts. So that, you know, we were all very, very excited about that. So anyway, I called Darso. He says, I'll get back in touch with you. We get to Philly, private plane. He says... Okay, I just spoke to somebody in the office. Vince wants you to fly to Stanford in the morning. You'll have two plane tickets waiting for you at the airport. He'll have a limo pick you up, going to bring you to his house, and uh, he'd like to talk to you guys. So we get up the next morning. We fly to uh, New York. Limo picks us up, takes us to Vince's house. We're out by the pool, and we have our discussion. You know, I, I'd love to, you know, he could... Vince in those days could just have you floating on air. When he talked to you for five minutes, you'd just turn and walk off, and you'd feel like you were three feet above the ground. He had all your history. He had, uh, you know, all the accomplishments and really was complimentary. And he asked us what we were going to make, you know, or what we'd been making, excuse me. He said, you know, what have you guys been making? And we told him, and he says, well, I can, you know, we don't have guaranteed contracts with my company. We have opportunity. He said, but 
I guarantee you guys will make more than you made with Crockett. So don't worry about that. And we took him at his word. And uh, we agreed on a start date. And we asked him what he wanted us to do about the world tag titles. Did you know? Did he want us to, just to turn them in? Or he said, no, what do you think you should do? And I said, well, uh, Bobby Eaton and the Midnight Express are, are friends of mine and they're business partners of mine. And uh, I'd like to do the right thing. I'd like to drop the the titles to, to uh, Bobby, myself, take the fall on me. So you do what you think is right at Arn. That, and that's, we got back to Philly, got down to the arena, went in and we uh, had a talk with Dusty and uh, I told him that's what I'd like to do. And he said, fine. Let's pump the brakes right there for a minute. Look, I want to clarify <laughs> this meeting with Vince and Stanford by the pool. This is happening the morning of the Philadelphia show. The Philadelphia shows at night, right? Correct. When you're meeting with, with, uh, Vince by the pool, I know you don't get any specifics about cash, but does he give you any specifics about dates? Because in that era, they were madmen running shows two times a day, sometimes and running two and three crews, uh, road warrior is a, a, an understatement for what the schedule was back then. Is that discussed at all at that point? Well, no, he did not go into it at all. Um, and to be honest with you, I said earlier that uh, it was a huge consideration on me staying with Crockett because I had, you know, it had come through the grapevine. Not only were they making huge money through their marketing and through the houses and all that, they were also running three towns a night and they're working their ass off. And we all knew that. But for the first time in my life, I had been uh, insulted professionally. I felt like I had been used and abused believe it or not and you look at it on face value going out and having a four-minute match with with dr death steve williams and getting beat right in the middle of the ring should not be a big deal had the timing not been what it was and the issues not been what they were and the sovereignty if that's the correct word of the company being at stake Because let me tell you, when Steve Williams beat me, the roof did not come off the place. There was like a look of disbelief in the audience of, well, why the hell did they do that? Right. And, uh, and so I didn't think when I made that decision to go see Vince the next day, I did not even consider the number of days I would be working, which was probably one of uh, the bigger mistakes I made. But I had to trust my gut on this situation, and at that point in time, I was just pissed and felt disrespected, and and I hadn't felt that, if at all, to that degree since I'd been in the business, and if if I had, I didn't remember when. Did you discuss creative with Vince at all? Did he say, I've got some ideas in mind, or what about this, or what about that? Any sort of creative, or does Bobby Heenan even come up at that point? He, had, he did not come up. He just said, I'd like to use y'all as a team. He said, it's not broke. I'm not going to mess with it. And that was another concern that, that it had that he was, you know, he was really big into gimmicks and characters and all that, that he was going to try to put something on us that we couldn't pull off. He said, you guys don't worry about it. I'm going to leave you just as you are because it's not broke. So you come back, you, you go uh, to Philadelphia, you get to the building uh, you and Tully have got to be on, on cloud nine is the first person you tell, do you give Jim Cornette or your buddy, Bobby Eaton or, or Rick Flair a heads up? Or is the first person you tell, uh, dusty Rhodes? 
out of respect for Dusty, uh, went in and again, remember I didn't have the conversation with Dusty the previous night about the Steve Williams. I had it with Jimmy. Right. And Jimmy put all the heat on Dusty. Yes. Whether or not was that, that was true or not, you know, I don't know, but, um, I went in and out of respect for Dusty and everything he had done for me, um, the previous years, three years, whatever it had been, I went in and told him what we were doing, you know, and, and I think he knew when you pull Tully Blanchard off of a plane and have him flying commercial to towns, you, you got to know that something is going to be rumbling and, and there had to be in those days, some repercussions, whether it was going to be Tully was going to get fired when we we're going to move on. That was the next step. Or there was going to be a pushback. You, but you had to know something was coming. I doubt very seriously if Dusty ever in his wildest dreams thought we would leave. And it wasn't based on that one event. You got to back up and remember 11-7, that number, should stick in your head. Because that was the first time I was ever disrespected and lied to with no light at the end of the tunnel. The other half of that payoff for some reason to this day has really nagged at me. And you couple that with just a random squash job. It wouldn't have mattered who my opponent was. It could have been dusty. It could have been anybody. It didn't matter to do it at that time was just in my mind saying I can do anything I want. And this is what we're doing just because you guys need to cool your jets that's the way I took it. So how's your conversation with dusty go? Um, I didn't agree with what happened last night. Don't want to get into it because it's already done. It'll be, you know, it'll be on television. I'm sure if not, I don't even remember if it was dark or if it was on TV, but it happened, you know, the timing was terrible on it. So, uh, We'd like to turn our notice in tonight. I'll be happy to do the the job for Bobby right in the middle. And uh, we'll drop the titles to him. Tonight will be our last night. And he just got this really, really blank look on his face. And we left left his office. And uh, we didn't see him again. Really? The rest rest of the night, no. We kind of went and uh, told Bobby and and those guys, and we told Rick, and Rick didn't believe us. He thought we were going to be at TV the next day. He did not believe us, but uh, I would not take anything that serious that affected as many people as it was going to affect my family, Tully's family, uh, the crew, our opponents, the ownership, the booker, a lot of people, this was going to affect. And, uh, I don't think people really understood how much it would affect the company, but, uh, I knew because I had confidence in us and I, and I knew what we represented and that's what I based my value on week in and week out. You know, the things that I saw that we could make happen, uh, within the confines of, of the parameters we were given. So, Um, it wasn't a decision I made lightly, but I had a responsibility to myself to, uh, draw a line in the sand. And and that was it. When you, uh, 
you told me about the conversation with dusty. Do you see Jimmy or David at all in Philadelphia? Do you have any conversation with them there? No. Is there any attempt, you know, this is the old game of, uh, what telephone, telegram, telewrestler, the boys in the locker room knew this is your last night in and you're going to the WWF. Does anybody else start to feel like, uh, Hey, help me get one of those life rafts from New York. Is anybody else asking to put in a good word with Vince? There was an eerie, there was an eerie silence. Every time we would walk by somebody, whether it be to go get a cup of coffee out in the hall, uh, we went and found a locker room that we could be secluded, just the two of us. But every time we walked out in the hall to either, you know, get a cup of coffee or whatever, there was this eerie silence like someone had died. And uh, I don't know if the guys were just smart enough to know as well what what our departure was going to mean. I know a lot of them were thrilled because it opened up two top heel spots yep. right, right away. And I don't blame them. And if they didn't feel that way, if they didn't smell the blood in the water and go, I want that spot, then I don't know what they're doing in the business. But uh, you could, there was an eerie silence and nobody was really looking us in the eyes. It just... I think they knew at least, you know, no matter what you thought about Tully Blanchard, when he puts his notice in after the occurrences as of late, that he meant it and me backing him up, I'd never lied to anybody. You know, my, the guys that I worked with, the guys I worked for, never lied to them. I had told them the truth a lot of times when they didn't want to hear the truth. But I'd never lied to them, so they knew they knew it was a legitimate deal, and there was just an eerie, eerie silence. Let's talk about the match. Um, September tenth, nineteen eighty-eight, six thousand five hundred and thirty-two fans there, including a very young Steve Carino and Stevie Richards in attendance, and I think all kids were only a dollar for that show. It winds up being you and Tully's last match in the NWA. It was originally advertised as two out of three falls. Uh, the midnights are coming in as the U S tag champs. You guys are the world champs. So they're the only team to hold both of those titles at the same point at that point at that time. And, uh, this winds up being your last match with the company or the promotion until late 89 and Tully's last match until 94. Uh, of course, uh, the Alabama uh, the fin the top rope leg drop is, uh, the, the finish here, the Alabama jam from Bobby Eaton. And he gets the pin on you. And at the same time, Tully is giving Stan the slingshot, su- uh, the slingshot suplex, but referee Tommy young is going to say that, uh, the legal pin is the one Bobby made on you. And the crowd goes bananas. You can see this on YouTube. I don't think it's actually on the network because it wasn't televised, but somebody snuck a camera in. Uh, some, uh, ingenious fan in 1988 managed to sneak a camcorder in and filmed it from the crowd. And man, the crowd just goes bananas when they hand the belts to the midnights, pretty good match. What'd you think of the match? Were you pleased with it? When the, when the last hand comes down and you know, it's over, are you happy relieved? What's, what's the emotion you feel after this incredible run you had with Jim Crockett and you know, it's done. I don't know. I don't remember any of it. I was so emotional because I knew what we had just done. And I knew, you know, that whatever was ahead of us was. 
uh, I don't even know how to put it. It was speculation. Um, what have I got myself into? Did I make the right decision? Yeah, I made the right decision. Hell with them. So many things were going through my head. I don't remember the match. I do remember the reaction. And I knew, you know, there was the question of who should be the good guys and who should be the bad guys. I think Philadelphia told you we made the right decision as far as that goes. Yep. Um, and they will always tell you. That's the one thing I love about the audience. They will tell you when you suck and boy, they'll tell you when you don't. And, uh, you know, just, just thinking back, had we not put our notice in that night and we would have had the double pin and you'd have brought another ref down and you'd have had more controversy, this thing could have went on six months. And I think it could have built with, with Jim Cornette and JJ doing a lot of the talking and us filling in the blanks. And me leaning on Bobby and uh, making Bobby a victim and all this, I think it went on six months and it would have been on fire, obviously. We were just getting started. That's that's the one thing I do regret. God, what I wouldn't have done, I would have loved to have done that angle a year earlier and played it out through its entirety. It would have been fascinating to see you know, where it would have wound up. You know, We're in September here, so two months later, very easily could have been um, you know, one of the main events or co-main events or whatever you want to call it, uh, for Starcade. as it is though, it's that Starcade tag team title match is going to be the road warriors, uh, taking on sting and dusty. Uh, so it would have looked quite a bit different. Instead, the midnight express were working with the original midnight express with Polly dangerously in their corner. And of course the originals were, uh, Dennis Condry and Randy Rose, but it was the second match on the card. You got to think had Arn and Tully are there. It's probably second from the top. Um, and as well, it should have been, I'm curious, you know, what's your, what's your day looks like you know, as we sort of fill in the gaps, uh, at this point, are you married to Aaron or are y'all just still dating? No, no, we're married. So do you give her a heads up that, uh, Hey, uh, I'm flying to New York to meet with Vince. I think I'm quitting. Is she nervous, anxious? This is going to be a life change for her too. I'm sure she was anxious and nervous, but I think Aaron has always, you know, believed in me. I hope she has. Uh, more times out of not, um, I have made decisions as far as staying places and uh, being abused and not properly used. I don't, I don't want to say abused, but not properly used. And stayed with companies maybe longer than I should when everybody around me was saying, Go. You're Arn Anderson. I damn. Piss on the, these folks. Go company X, whatever that was. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And I would say, okay, especially when those 12 years that I was fortunate enough to work with WCW, no matter, and I really had some instances we'll get on, get into later down the road where I, I did get abused and used and not used properly, but more so screwed on my money royally. And, uh, but it was still guaranteed money. It was not nearly the schedule that I had had with the WWF. And 
hell or high water every two weeks that check came in. So if I had a three-year contract at the time, I could plan our lives around that uh, that amount of money. And you knew you were going to get it three years from now, no matter what. And that offered a lot of sanity for me, uh, a lot of stability, because in this business, when I came up, if you didn't work, if you got hurt and you didn't work, you didn't get paid. If you lost a job, you didn't get paid. If you were between territories and you had two weeks before you started, you didn't get paid. You got paid every two weeks with uh, WCW. And and a lot of times, even Aaron would say, you, you sure you don't want to make a move? And I go, no, honey, I want our stability of our family to be in check and I want to know what we're going to be making a year from now or two years from now. And I want to know that we can balance our lives. And uh, she's been nothing but supportive. And uh, I hope I haven't been wrong yet. We'll see. When you told Rick you were leaving, you said that, you know, his reaction is he thinks you're blowing off steam and you're going to be in Fayetteville the next afternoon for TV. And it doesn't really sink in uh, until you guys aren't really there. What'd you do after the show? You know, uh, it feels like the horsemen were going out after the show. Did you guys go out and celebrate your last night in and Rick just still thinks you're pulling his leg or you're just upset or what did the evening after the show look like for you and Tully? Um, I want to say I had about 30 double C breezes. (laughs) Sounds about right. I'm absolutely certain it was the indoor record. I'm sure Tully had something comparable and we got up the next morning, fish eyed and got on a plane and, uh, went home. So uh, Meltzer would report in the observer around this time that you guys were leaving. And and he says that you guys have been threatening to leave for five or six weeks and quote, at one point they, and another wrestler gave word that they were through unless dusty Rhodes was replaced. However, Jim Crockett failed to replace Rhodes as Booker, but the wrestlers didn't follow through with their threat to leave until now. I hadn't heard this before until I did my research for the show. Is that true? Did you guys give Crockett an ultimatum that if Dusty's out or if Dusty's in, you're out? I was never part of that conversation. I was part of a conversation with Rick, myself, and Tully, and it started out. The three of us were going to leave. That's how it started. Because Rick even knew them watering us down and doing the things that they were doing was going to affect the company. Sure. Um, now, <clears throat> all I can do is speculate. But when the three of us sat down in front of Jimmy Crockett, we were dead serious. Some things had to change. Well, Rick, I'm sure, had another separate sidebar conversation, you know, and uh, whether or not he said, hey, you got to have a book or change or whatever, I would have never been comfortable being part of that conversation because you don't look at one of your bosses and say, hey, you either fire my other boss or I'm gone. That just would never enter my mind you could do that or should do that, and I'm pretty sure you shouldn't. Um, 
And again, a lot of the things, whether or not Dusty, you know, made all the right decisions or some of the wrong decisions, who will never, you know, time will tell. Uh, the fact is Jimmy Crockett could have made me whole just by giving me the other half of my pay-per-view money, making sure I was figured in on the first round of guaranteed contracts when he cut his deal with, uh, uh, Turner, hey, if you're going to buy the company, I'd like for you to take care of Arn Anderson or Tully Blanchard or off the get-go because these guys have been nothing but valuable and they will continue to be nothing but valuable. That would have made me whole with Jimmy Crockett, Dusty, and the whole company. And I'd have stayed with them until hell or high water. But none of that happened. So we gave him a chance. Again, this was a precursor to mine and Jimmy's conversation after the match in, in Houston. This isn't right. We're not being done right. And Jimmy, in the long run, it's going to hurt your company because you know what value we bring. That's the conversation that we had. It was still positive. It was still upbeat. I think Rick probably had a, uh, you know, I don't know if he thought we were bluffing as well, but, you know, I don't, I don't bluff. You know, I keep my mouth shut. I told the line. But when it's time and I say, hey, that's it, then that's it. Because barking doesn't get you anywhere. All it does is ruin your credibility. And I don't give do you have a shit what company you're talking about or what scenario. Barking doesn't get you anywhere. You got one chance to say, hey, this is wrong. Fix it or out of here. And uh, so as it turned out, when it got time to go, I think Rick, right up to the very end, I think he thought we were going to come walking in, you know, TV the next day and go, Hey, let's talk about this. It is pretty fun to think about, and I can't wait for us to talk about it another time, but it's not too terribly long. And, uh, Rick is going to have serious conversations. I mean, Bruce Pritchard says that they thought they had Rick at SummerSlam 88, which would have been a month prior to this. So clearly there was some interest, but what if he would have moved in time for SummerSlam 88? What if Arn and Tully would have jumped the following month in September? It's not going to be too long. And Barry Windham's going to be in the promotion as is JJ Dillon. You could have had the four horsemen in the WWF under a different set of circumstances, and it might not have taken a whole lot to make it happen. So that's fantasy booking for another time. But something else I want to ask you about here in the observer Meltzer would write Anderson was making a public appearance for the NWA at a television syndication convention. And McMahon was at the same convention. And the two disappeared together over lunch for several hours. From all reports, the two had a very amicable meeting and Titan had been interested in Anderson since that point. Now, earlier you, I sort of got the indication that that was the first time you had met Vince. Did you have lunch with Vince at some TV conference early in 88? I don't know where that came from. And I don't know who believes Vince McMahon could sit still for two hours. Number one. Number two, I don't eat lunch. It makes me lazy. So that never happened. I don't know where that came from. It's, it's interesting, but not factual. Dave also wrote, there are probably several reasons why the pair left such a key spot with the NWA for what easily could be a future middle of the card performer with Titan, particularly not getting the balloon payments that were due to them in May and the uncertainty about the future of the NWA, which is presently in financial disarray. There's no word on whether other wrestlers will follow the pair's lead. Unlike other recent losses, like the powers of pain, this loss definitely is a major one for the NWA. 
not only because Blanchard and Anderson had been headliners as tag team champions for most of the past year, but also because it destroys the four horsemen gimmick without getting any mileage out of their future breakup feud. A lot to unpack here. Um, but I guess the biggest question though is creatively, are you glad you didn't give long enough notice for them to do some sort of breakup of the, uh, horsemen? Because had they done that, it may have prevented you from doing it in the future. You know, if we would have done, uh, if we would have done the breakup of the horsemen, I can only speculate that one of a few things could have happened. The audience would have spit it out because they didn't want to see it. It could have failed from that perspective. You know, it's like brothers. Nobody really wants to see brothers beat the piss out of each other. You know, Hardy boys, Steiners, you name it. Anytime they've done an angle brother against brother, it didn't have the cachet or panache that everyone thought it would be because I don't think anybody believes you're really going to hurt your brother. That's one way. Um, I would suggest that if you did have a spat between the horsemen, if it went another way, would be it would just be so interesting and so entertaining that the company would have been on fire again and they would have never sold the company and it would have been all over again, just sold out houses and, and you name it. So it could have, it could have went either way. Um, one thing I do know is in those days, if you did work a notice, they normally would beat you all the way out. But then again, with us, they had already beaten us quite a bit. So, I don't know what they would have accomplished by doing that, but it might've tarnished, you know, what we had accomplished. Looking back now, you know, Rick, uh, has been pretty vocal about this. He, he admits that he resigned without knowing that he had leverage and that Turner has said they wouldn't have bought the promotion without Rick Flair being under contract. So in theory, Rick could have, Rick could have made much more money. Than he actually did because Crockett needed him in order to secure that deal to Turner. Do you think perhaps you could have leveraged that same relationship and the horseman label and gotten a, a bigger guaranteed contract from Turner that maybe Crockett never gave you had you hung around a little bit? Well, imagine what would have happened if somebody would have took the initiative on our behalf and said, okay, you know, if you want to buy the company, you know, I need you to take care of Flair, Anderson, and uh, Blanchard first. Right. They're they're the nucleus of your product. Before we go any further, and why someone didn't have that confidence in us, or have that frame of mind where we were concerned after all we had given the company. And uh, I think if you look back at the numbers and and the position we were in and all the things that had happened good for Jim Crockett promotions the past three years, I think we were as responsible as anybody that they had working for them. So, you know, why somebody didn't step up and do that, I'll never know. It would have been in their own best interest and God knows how much prosperity they would have, you know, gotten by just taking a stand where we were concerned. You know, a a generation later, maybe just a decade later, um, guys in your position who have the tag belts and have the ability to leave, it feels like they could have drawn the line in the sand themselves and said, Hey, I need to know what my contract with Turner is going to look like. And if it's not the right number, then you're going to see these belts on WWF TV tomorrow. 
in hindsight, did that ever cross your mind that maybe we should draw a line in the sand and demand a new contract or was it just more of, you know what? We've had enough. I didn't know again. I've said this in the past and I really mean it. I didn't know you could say no. Right. Conrad, it never occurred to me. And I was told and I was taught from a very early age you were expected to go out every single night and give the very best performance you could possibly give. And at the end of the night, we're going to tally up the numbers on how many people were there. And that's what you're going to get paid off of. I didn't know you could say no. I didn't know you could not do something. I just, I was always taught that go out and do, do whatever you have the ability to do, but do it every single night. And, um, I, d- I didn't know you could hold the company up. It would have never crossed my mind. All these years later, you know, with the benefit of hindsight now, if you had to do it over again, any regrets? I don't think so. Because every place I've been, I've learned something. Every place I've been, I've had a good relationship with first and foremost, the talent, because whether anybody believes it or not, it doesn't matter who the booker is. It doesn't matter who the office is. It doesn't matter how many bosses you have above you. The one thing you have to have, if you're going to be a long-term success in this business is you got to have the respect of the talent. Cause if you don't, it doesn't matter what else you do and, and, and what your position is with the company and, and uh, how high up the totem pole you are, if you don't have the respect of the other guys sitting in that locker room, and if you don't have their trust, then you're not going to survive very long in this business because we're all codependent of each other. Nobody gets over without ever without everybody else that's in the room at the time. So I think I've learned something everywhere I've been. I've matured. Uh, I've I've built some good relationships, and I think – Anybody that runs into me that doesn't know me, they at least know that whatever comes out of my mouth is going to be my perception, at least, of the truth. And um, that's who I am today. Well, and we appreciate you spending some time with us today. If you haven't already, follow our show on Twitter. It's at The Orange Show, and we're going to do something fun today. We're going to let you guys pick what we're talking about next week here on the show. Uh, by the time you're hearing this, the poll is live over at the Arn show on Twitter. Throw us a follow there. And we want to hear what you want to hear. Uh, option number one will be fall brawl. 1995. We mentioned earlier in the show. That's when Arn finally faced his best friend, the nature boy, Ric Flair at fall brawl. 95. That's option. Number one, uh, one of the most monumental moments in television history is option. Number two, it's uh, called the night in Greenville's when Ric Flair returns to nitro. After an extended feud with Eric Bischoff, that's September 14th, 1998. That is option number two. Now, option number three will be another famous promo from a year prior, August 24th, 1997, when he gives his spot to Kurt and in the process retires right there on TV. Uh, last and certainly not least, we'll let you ask the questions if you pick option number four. We're calling it hashtag AskArnAnything. Q&A episode. If you want to pick the brain of the enforcer, there's your chance to do so. So what are you waiting for? Go follow us on Twitter. Throw us a vote right now. It's at the Arn Show. And while you're at it, go to the ArnShowLive.com. I can't believe we're already doing this, but we've got our first live show and it's happening at WrestleCade weekend. 
and we've already sold a bunch of tickets to my surprise. Fans are really, really excited about you and I getting together after the matches right there in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. What can fans expect at that live show? Major bullshit session. <laughs> what are you waiting for? Check it out right now. Arnshowlive.com or thearnshowlive.com. Either one will work uh, as long as you get your tickets and make plans to see us in Winston-Salem. In the meantime, we'll see you next week, next Tuesday, and every Tuesday at 6 a.m. right here on Westwood One on Arn. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.